southbound, I've been hellbound, riding on the midnight train. Going too fast now, think I'll slow down. Hey guys, what's going on? Tony and Tristan here, Zero Duck 30 Podcast. Y'all, we have got some good stuff going on tonight. Um, we've been so lucky that we got Mr. Uh, Dr. Brad Cohen uh, on the show with us today from Cohen Wildlife Research Lab. And we can't be more excited and more humbled to have somebody with what you do, the intelligence that you have, and the people you surround yourself with is just, uh, it blows my mind. So um, with that said, um, Brad, please introduce everybody to you. Hey, man. Thanks for having me here today. I appreciate you uh, letting me talk to you guys, and I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Yes, sir. Thanks for taking the time to come on. So what's a, give us a little bit of background about, you know, who, who, who is Brad Cohen? Yeah. So I, um, uh, well, I'm originally from New York and kind of got into the wildlife research field in a roundabout way. I was a biology major who had no clue what I was doing with my life other than I, I knew I loved hunting and fishing. Um, I went to my undergrad college because it was right next to the place I had grown up hunting. Um, probably could have got into better ones, but I knew where I wanted to go. And uh, my stepdad took me in the car one day and said, you know, where do you, where do you see yourself doing with your life? And I was a senior at this point. I was like, I don't know. He said, well, where do you have yourself, you see yourself having your first uh, cup of coffee in the morning? And I said, well, it's, he's like, well, wait, 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 wait. Is it in the back office? Is it in the, you know, the high rise? Is it in the woods? I said, it's in the woods. It's in the woods. And it's like, there you go. So I Googled white-tailed deer and uh, Google Scholar put out a name, Carl Miller at university of georgia i sent him an email and he took me on as a student i spent fun of spending 12 years down or 10 years down to georgia as a master student and then a phd student doing deer work and then i switched over working with mike chamberlain doing turkey work and now i'm at tennessee tech university and i do work on a, a wide array of uh, game species mainly anything from like rails um, and other secretive marsh birds all the way to ducks and turkeys and deer yeah, I was going to say when we were doing some um, just prep work for the podcast, I saw we were actually uh, why we were looking it up while the UGA game was on. I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm sure he's going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a nice thing to watch. It's always uh, so like, you know, I can't coming from New York. There's only pro football. And then you go down to Georgia and I met my wife there and she grew up as she like went to Georgia from freshman on through uh, senior. And every Saturday is a religious experience for her. And I'm totally bought in. Trust me. Trust me. Saturday is a big deal in our household. <laughs> That's awesome. 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 So um, so I'm so uh, I'm just going to be a sponge this this whole time we have you. So okay. um Everybody sit back and get ready to learn some really important stuff. Um, the research that I have done and Tristan have done, we have been talking about for a while now, and we dug into it a little bit more, and man, you guys, is this stuff cool. Mm. So, um, Brad, talk a little bit about, um, introduce uh, what, the, what, it, what and who is Cohen uh, Wildlife Research Lab. Yeah, so it's just basically me and all my graduate students I have. And I have eight graduate students right now and a postdoc. And collectively, we're kind of a team that just works together to try and do, we do different types of questions, right? Anything from population management to uh, putting GPS transmitters on animals. But all of it is in the name of somehow informing uh, 
a decision making process for a state agency or a federal agency. Mm. We want to do we want to do science that is informative and we come at it from different views. Like most of us do hunt, but we're also unbiased and like we're just trying to a lot of our questions do have to do with hunting. Uh, whether it's like, you know, how animals behave with hunting or how hunting affects populations. But at the end of all thing, it's like we're just trying to put put that information out there, both to the, the stakeholders like state agencies, but also the public. That's why we have a Facebook. Uh, that's the Cone Wildlife Lab is how you find it. And we put all of our findings there, too, just so people can kind of feel that open transparency that I think this type of science dictates. Very very cool. Um, I know, you know, if if I'm speaking for most of us duck hunters, you know, we have this like we, when we are like zooming, especially the younger people, you know, zooming through their social medias and, bzz, 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 and you're a duck hunter. Yeah. And you, all of a sudden you see all these lines, matching lines on your screen. Yeah. You're stopping yeah. and taking a break. I mean, yeah. and uh, it's genius uh, how much you guys have spent time um, just publishing what you do in your findings. Uh, I find that so interesting. Yeah. And Tony and I have been following what you guys do for ever since we've been duck hunting, um, mm -hmm. just originally being from Illinois and just being around the Mississippi river. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, just looking at different biological stuff along the Mississippi river, I think is how we originally found you guys. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a testament to my graduate students to be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, I give the okay on all these posts, but they are constantly grinding out stuff. Cause I think, you know, we're, we're passionate about what we do. Uh, you know, I won't, we, we, pretty, we come pretty dang close to living the dream professionally. You know, we're not, we're not curing cancer. We don't, we take this as seriously as you can take science, but man, is it fun and cool. And uh, any way we can get people to be involved in it, we love it. <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah, I know, um, you know, we shared some of your stuff. Um, you know, we'll share it personally to some of our groups that we're in and stuff like that. And it's always one of the most favorite like posts and stuff uh, <laughs> for sure, you know. So cool. Good. Well, it started off, you know, where I'm like, you know, like I am a, such a student of a duck, you know, like mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. them out back. I, I've, the, I've watched the population grow. I watch them molt. I, you know, it's, it's, and, and people would call them park mallards, but they leave every October and I don't see another <laughs> one until the middle of February, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. know where they go, but mm -hmm. we had a, uh, we had one here that when we moved in that, um, the people that we bought the house from said, well, that's a, broke bill betty and she's been coming here ever since we built the house 22 years ago <laughs> and uh this year betty was the first uh mallard back and i saw her february 18th and never seen her again so she might <laughs> she might have went on <laughs> so she might have passed on at this age but you know, but anyway one one thing since i know this is kind of off topic but since we have you brad <clears throat> have you with local mallards um you know, that move out of an area, what, so I guess local mallards migrate some too. I mean, is there any, do you guys have any research on any local mallards like <clears throat> in your area that? Yeah. Moves? Yeah. That's a great, great question. Uh, yeah, we do. We, we, we go and we take, uh, we do genetics on all of the genetic work on all of our ducks. Right. So we know like what percent of them are park ducks, what percent of them are wild ducks. Mm -hmm. And um, in general, you know, I'll speak broad brush here, but mm -hmm. yeah, they, they don't move as much they they don't make it as far north they don't go as far south um so they do migrate out a little bit right they do push mm -hmm. but but it's not necessarily uh, the exact same as a wild mallard would mm -hmm. in magnitude and scale 
I gotcha. Sure. Um, you know, and that brings up another interesting thing that I was listening to. I forgot which podcast it was, but they were um, examining like the Atlantic Flyway mallards um, versus, you know, the the natural, you know, mallard species versus like the park park duck species. I guess you guys can tell mm-hmm. once you get looking into the stuff. And it was something like one out of every, like one out of two mallards is like not a true mallard in the Atlantic Flyway anymore. Is that yeah that that's yeah so the the person leading that his name is phil lebretsky if you ever want to have an interesting conversation i highly recommend you invite him on he's he's incredibly intelligent mm-hmm. um but what they're finding out there is certainly interesting with how much introgression we've seen or basically you know how much uh gene movement there's been from like these kind of park mallards into the wild population now is that the same with our uh, mississippi ducks mm. We're not. I don't really know if the de- the data is showing that the Mississippi uh, flyway has the same amount mm-hmm. per se, but we do release a ton of, you know, ducks to be shot at every year on all these shoots. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. We could dive down that whole mallard thing, you know, for a minute. <laughs> I mean, we really could. But let's just jump back into the, you know what are. What are the different ways that you guys, I mean, everybody knows you for your GPS, right? What are the different ways that you guys gather data? What are the different types of ways? Yeah. So, um, all right. So you got to keep in mind, like, while I do a lot of waterfowl work, I also do a bit of deer work and turkey work. And so it, it spans the gauntlet. All sure. right. We, we do everything from uh, simple hunter harvest surveys, right? Like, did you kill a deer? Please report your deer. We, we just finished uh, a project taking that data and actually building population estimates of white-tailed deer, which in and of itself sounds like we should probably have that if we're managing an animal. But it's, it's, uh, you learn very quickly as a wildlife biologist, like stuff that is really important is also really hard to come by when you're dealing with wild populations. So like estimating how many are out there. God knows that's like an unlimited number of people. That's their whole career. So we can do something as simple as like, just tell us you killed the deer. We also use things like cameras, just like you just like you guys go out there and go, okay, I'm going to scout out this big buck. We do the same thing, just looking at behaviors or something like that. Uh, we use <laughs> one of my projects. <laughs> this stuff is crazy. But one of our things actually just we have what are called acoustic recording units or also known as autonomous recording units. It doesn't matter. ARUs. Huh. They, we literally put them in a tree and they just record the ambient sound when we tell them to. Then we bring those sound files back into the lab, process them through software, and we can identify everything from uh, different songbirds that are singing. So we're using that for our marsh bird project where we're trying to find out if there are any breeding marsh birds. Um, But we're also using it to actually quantify the number of shotgun blasts in our hunting area. Wow. So uh, there's that. That is Yeah, so you name it, we probably do with it. You know, we we do a lot of satellite imagery. We're all over. But in the end of all things, it comes down to just trying to do pattern recognition on some kind of data. So when you, um, you know, look at something like shotgun blasts in a, you know, let's call it a WMA that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you have an idea maybe how many ducks are in the area. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys, is that data used by organizations to set like, for example, I know some <clears throat> WMAs have like a, um, and I don't know if Tennessee has this, but I know Arkansas has some that you can only take 25 shells into a, 
or 15 shells into a WMA. Yep. Um, is, do organizations use that data? Would that be a application for some data like that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So it could be. So Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are the people that are, are funding that, that study in particular. And mm-hmm. um, there's two different parts of the applicability. Um, part one is just a general measure of hunter success as it relates to a bunch of different attributes, whether it's uh, how many birds are there, mm-hmm. uh, how much the ducks are movement moving because we have GPS movement, different weather events. So simple stuff, right? Just more biological, like, you know, over, you know, Tennessee, we like to hunt out blinds. So it's, you don't see a lot of like pulses of hunter pressure, right? It's just pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And so we can use that to also monitor across years. But in the end of all things, it's, I don't know if you can use it to be like, uh, the number of shotgun blasts that happen. Instead, what we do is just like, you know, because when you, when somebody shoots, it's it's not just one person. It's like a whole team of people. Bop, 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 bop. Right. right. That's like, that's like okay, we know at least one duck was there. We, we'll call that an opportunity. You had an opportunity to harvest that. Mm-hmm. And then we can look at it across a bunch of different questions. So uh, the next phase of our research is looking at how we can basically uh, put rest areas uh, on private land rest areas across our river systems and see if it moves ducks more. And then do we see more shots because of it? Mm-hmm. See what I'm getting at? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm and just... that, oh, let me follow up with, and the state and federal agencies can then use that data to say, okay, here's here's the bang for the buck. You know, for every dollar we spend, here's how you get, here's the hunter opportunity that we're creating. Should we put another blind here? Should we buy another pro- private uh, rest area? Should we open it up? All in the decision-making process that I'm generally out of because that's, you know, their their thing. So, you know, and I know you just mentioned that, um, you know, it's generally like the state and stuff that handles that stuff, but as far as determining different areas and that kind of thing, but, mm-hmm. um, I'm just curious and I just, you know, we are a part of a lot of different Facebook groups and mm-hmm. Arkansas duck hunters and, mm-hmm. and then we hunt out there a good bit too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest area thing, I'm sure you're well aware is such a hot topic with guys because oh, mm-hmm. they don't they don't rotate the rest areas and all this. What is your take, Brad, on rest areas? Um, and do are you aware of? I'm sure you got to be aware of some of the complaints with like certain rest areas that don't get rotated. Sure, sure. So let's so let's start with back up a little bit and start with one of the projects that we're doing. Mm-hmm. The first the first project we're that that we've been doing, and I have a PhD student on this. Her name is Abby Blake Bradshaw, and she's been what well, what the purpose of one of our studies was, was to look at the role that these refuges, not rest areas, but mm-hmm. refuges, right. But, you know, cause rest areas to me are a little bit different, but refuges, state and federally owned refuges where nobody can go in once the ducks get here mm-hmm. and they don't get, they don't get to go in until the ducks leave. All right. And so the constant the question is, well, there's where all our ducks are. Why won't you let a, us hunt them? Mm-hmm. And so our goal was to use those GPS transmitters on top of ducks to see like, okay, how are they moving around these refuges and or these river tributary systems in West Tennessee? And then also we were like, okay, let's mimic different activities on the refuge. So on our state refuges, what we did was we went in and walked around and kicked every bird up. Mm-hmm. Now keep in mind, we have those ARUs up, right? So we can actually count quantify not only with our GPS transmitters, how a duck reacts, but we can figure out how many people are getting extra shots, right? Is yeah. going on this? Yeah. Okay, hold on, hold on. All right, then second one. Um, let's uh, mimic 
let's mimic just driving up and down this, right? Maybe as simple as something like just a birder coming through and taking pictures, right? Very low intensity, what we would call disturbance, right? Right. But you're in some, and the third one was, we're going to whip these ducks up and we're going to rip them up by where we would boat or ATV around the entire area for an hour. <laughs> and, get your boat boaters. Okay. So like, they're not getting back down. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So short of actually letting a shotgun blast ring, we, we got those ducks up and moving. As waterfowlers, we experience all kinds of extreme weather conditions. Stay bone dry and warm with Frog Togs hunting gear. You can check them out at frogtogs.com or at frogtogs hunt on Instagram. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're like, what are the tangible benefits, right? This is your question. Yeah. In the end of all things is what is my opinion of rest areas? I had no opinion of rest areas when I started this because you know what? I'm a hunter. I'm a diehard waterfowl hunter. And I see the same thing. There's my ducks. Mm-hmm. What you learn really quickly based on our data because there's another thing that we're doing. We're actually flying aerial transects. And what we're doing while we fly these, like literally getting in a plane, flying a couple hundred feet above wow. the, <clears throat> all of our hunted area, is we're quantifying how many hunting blinds are out there, mm-hmm. quantifying how many mojo decoys are running while. Wow. So we, we know hunting pressure really, really well. At the exact same time, we're going out there and looking at how much food is out there, like bi-weekly. So, I mean, I'm telling you, we have... <laughs> the, TWRA did us right and this project is is got all the different questions you could think what would make a duck move right mm-hmm. and what we see is the bottom line is that ducks have like nowhere else to go mm-hmm. so the so you know you know, like you like the idea of rotate them well all they're going to do is just run away from your area they're not going to like <laughs> like reposition themselves a couple feet over right the, the refuges are kind of like they know to go there to begin with, and that's where they radiate, radiate, radiate out from. And so to mess with them at all, I think, our data suggests, could be a mistake just simply because that's where your ducks are being held. Because there's nowhere else that's safe across the landscape, period. Mm-hmm. Right. And do you think um, – Do you, so I guess this is kind of like a two-part follow-up question I have. Um, do you think that, let's say, from – I know there's like an imprinting aspect with the ducks and stuff, mm. but um, do you think like from, let's say you let a res- refuge area be there for maybe five years and then maybe you change it for five years. Do you, is there any benefit of making a new refuge area? And then also are ducks, you know, quicker to realize that than we give them credit for? Like, could you change it and two days later they realize where the pressure is and then, then back, you know, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. you're, you're asking yeah. quick, so like a, quick decision oh, makers. Yeah. Right. So like a good parallel to this would be something like, what do ducks do on opening day? Right. It was safe beforehand and now everything's kind of crazy. Or what do they do? We have two youth hunts mm-hmm. um, in the end of Feb or in the middle of February and early February and military hunts that like ducks realize it's safe and then they instantly go back. You could rotate all day, but ducks don't want to get their butt shot. Right. I mean, you know, common sense says the, what we think, what, what I think and what our data I think plays out and suggests is that we can redistribute ducks and move them around a lot more mm-hmm. by adding paradoxically adding more rest areas. So that's the only thing that is, you know, as a, as a wildlife ecologist, all I think about is like, what is the limiting factor here? What, what do we need? And yeah, there's, 
in some places or most places, I don't know if they're food limited, but I know they're safety limited. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me there isn't a, a where there is a duck hole or a piece of water that can be hunted that it's not leased or hunted or this or that. You know what I'm saying? There's very yes. few safe places. So like you want more ducks, you got to give them what's the limiting factor, and for them, it's safety. So there, uh, you could you could leave it there five years and then hunt it for two days and have really good hunts, and then guess what? They're not dumb. Mm. <laughs> They're not going to sit there and let you shoot at them. Right? <laughs> Come on, right? you know. And I guess I guess in the end of all things, that's one thing I've grown to appreciate is small brain, but pretty damn smart. Yeah, that's... especially when it, and, it, and it makes sense, right? Like mm. I wouldn't want my ass to get shot at either. Exactly. You got to learn real quick. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting, man. I I feel like somewhere deep down, whether hunters want to admit it or not, they probably have an inkling of some of this stuff. But I feel like the easy out is to you know go on your Facebook group and just start griping about you know oh this is what the state's doing and you know whatever and throw your two cents into it. But you know it totally makes sense to me what you're saying that you know you can change it all you want, but the the thing is is they're smart. They're gonna go to their you know, hiding places. And essentially if they don't have hiding places, they got to have hiding places to be comfortable to get more ducks in your area. Yes. Like the idea of like, if we were, well, what happens if we removed all the federal refuges? Well, first of all, you're never doing that. Mm-hmm. Second of all, like, okay, let's say you did, you know where they're going? Other safe places. They're not <laughs> yeah. just going to stay around and let you shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> it's They'll not, go to it's the not... parks. They'll go somewhere. Yeah. But they're not going into your blind. <laughs> yeah. It's not like Bob, Bob out there in Southern Missouri. He's like, Y'all come in here first morning, shoot all my ducks. They're going all the way down to Arkansas. They ain't come back. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just, and, and you realize when you look at our GPS tracks, like how quickly, and, and when you look at the hunting pressure that these ducks experience, and you really, I mean, you fly over it, you, you, you listen to it with the shotgun blast, and you truly experience it, not just like as a hunter, like who has to compete to get to a spot, mm-hmm. but just you see it from a duck's view you understand why they behave the way they do because one mistake, one mistake and it's over game over. Yeah. Yep. And, and it tells you the type of situation we've created is we shouldn't be surprised that all of our ducks are on refuges because in the end of all things, they need to make it back North and to do anything else, but sit there and stay still until hunters are out. would be pretty dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. it, It would be now. I've got to ask, and some of this is off topic, but Brad, we're going to keep you on here tonight as long as possible. Okay. I'm just telling you, man, this, I mean, okay. this is like, I feel like we're like, we're on, we're not even starting to climb the hill. All right. So, so I'm just mind blown. I'm sitting here as a 50 year old man that has been one with the woods since I was born. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people say you hit the ground running, I hit the ground running and my mom knew I was in the woods and I've always been astonished by the data, you know, just like whenever we used to have that lease in Illinois and we had, we had biologists that studied deer that were four and a half years of age and older mm-hmm. for six years straight. And they did mm-hmm. it from helicopter. They did it from radio collar, all that stuff. And I was just a teenager at the time and they would come and I'd be like, can I, check out those collars, you know, they were like, yeah, come on, you know, and they would show me and stuff. And, and they were from West, uh, Western Illinois university. And, um, it was just amazing to me at the time. What, and I'll get to the point real quick. I'm sorry to get off topic, but it, it was that 
their end results were they came and sat down at the farm with the owner and said, and this is 2,200 acres, so four square miles of property, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and said, after six years of study, this is what we determined. And uh, my stepdad said, what? <laughs> and he said, bucks that are four and a half years of age and older. Now, keep in mind, this is before a lot of camera time and stuff like that out there, uh, technology. Um, 78% of bucks are never seen after four and a half years of age by humans, ever. Mm, 78%. So and it was just, it, the point I'm getting at, that just that one fact to me as a young man was so intriguing to me and it built the hunter that I am because it gave me more respect for the animal and what it yes. goes through. And we're sitting here talking about what these stupid, smart ducks do. <laughs> it's so well said. Yes, it, it, it is. And it's just blowing my mind right now. So, all right. So, all right. How am I going to get to my next question with this? <laughs> this is, this is crazy. Um, did I answer your rest area question or your, you know, your yeah. kind of refuge question pretty good? Yes, absolutely. Because You're satisfied with it? All right. Essentially what I was just wanting to get at is I kind of had an idea where maybe some of the data and stuff might be what you may have said, but I just wanted to I wanted to hear your perspective on it as somebody yeah. that directly yeah. works with this every, you know, yep. this is your job, yeah. you know? Yeah, so on the properties that I help manage, like, you know, some of these questions are kind of starting to influence how I, how I think about things like, you know, how are we going to look at a waterfowl kind of landscape and break it apart so that there's a matrix of food and safety and what type of, you know, what type of cover do we want that to be? All of that kind of starts to play in your head where you start to realize that it's like, well, maybe corn isn't just corn because it provides food, but it's also, you know, uh, you know, shelter, right. Or Mm -hmm. maybe there should be this type of habitat that I keep spraying down just so that the ducks feel a little safer on my property. All these things start to kind of bubble in your head. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do want to get back to like the nutrition of food and stuff with ducks because uh, just some of the stuff, I think, I, I, I do want to circle back to that at some point, but I want Tony to get, get on to what he was going to. Um, Sorry, bud. Go no, you're, you're good, man. I'm... So um, these ducks that you're studying, Mm-hmm. Some of these, you've been recording data for years. Like that one mm-hmm. you just posted about that mallard going back mm-hmm. to, I think, 2019. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys got to be living, like like you said, your dream. But once you get that data, how do you mm-hmm. process that data? Do you use AI technology? Or yeah, is it, yeah. it Excels? <laughs> I mean, you guys have automated all this stuff because you're already geniuses. Yeah. And you're like, how can we be more genius? You know, I told you that story of like, you know, okay, I'm going to become a wildlife biologist because, you know, I'm going to sit in the woods with my first cup of coffee. Uh-huh. Well, all right. I went and got a master's degree and realized that I would probably quit my job the first day I was at a check station being a wildlife biologist instead of hunting. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll go get my PhD. And so now what I do is I'm really a computer person that works with animals, right? Because I've got to learn all of this stuff or at least let my students learn it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've got a, I've got a current graduate student right now in my lab. He's a computer science major. He's not an ecologist uh, in the general sense, right? But he's doing artificial intelligence learning to look at, like, how do we take satellite layers and turn them into delineations of duck habitat? Like, that's... What we actually do is more often, I'm a computer coder, really. I take all I take all this super large data set stuff, 
and I code it into different programs and out spits my answers, right? But I'm not any different than a data analyst that works for a hospital or anything else. I just ask it with animals. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's it. Mm. So cool. So cool. So um, you guys got these, what did you call them that records all the sound? Oh, the ARUs. The ARUs. recording units, yeah. All right. So let's do a small little breakdown since we got so many Mallard purists and I'm a Mallard purist at some level, uh-huh, but uh-huh. I think we all are. Mm-hmm. The different sounds that the Mallards make based on actions, behavior, dominance, um, food, uh, food yeah. aggressiveness, all these yeah. things. I've been learning a lot from these park ducks myself personally, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have learned a lot of similarities between them and other animals that I've observed in my life. And what do you guys see? What, what, what are you guys processing out of those sounds when you hear this common cadence or this, you know, three times, is it whack, whack, whack? Is it whack, 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 whack? (laughs) Have you guys found any commonality between those sounds and and what they mean? (laughs) All right. So a couple things there. The answer is probably yes, but I'll tell you what, you know, in the end of all things, the best part of my job for this project, it's not just looking at the GPS behavior, but to be able to, you know, we, we do our trapping on, on state refuges. Mm-hmm. So like to be able to sit there in front of 80,000 ducks, you know, <laughs> right. Like how many people get to experience that of a ducks just loafing around, just right. doing their thing. You know, you start to see, there's a just like any duck caller will tell you like some days i'll watch ducks that seem to just be so pissed at each other (laughs) and the cadences are longer and sharper and then there's just you know a day where they're just not agitated it's just light they're quieter you know there's certainly different things but there's no there's no universal i don't think other than like you know their general like tail call and stuff like that that we already know there's no universal language a lot of the stuff that i hear almost constantly on the aru's or just out sitting in front of 80,000 ducks is nothing but what seems like for better, no better word, numbless chatter, right? Just like a lot of whistling mm-hmm. from other ducks. Yeah, Drake, I'll tell you what, I think like 90% of the calls you actually hear are Drake calls, probably because there's so many of them compared mm-hmm. to hens, but mm-hmm. that's it, man. There's yeah. really no special medicine. Well, huh. you know, I'd notice to me, and this is just what I've studied. Maybe I'm just not processing it right because I don't know how to, because I'm not smart enough. But I sit there and I watch these ducks and I listen and I listen and I listen. And I listen to the, the the mallards and they got this little, I like to call it a little grunt call, you know, like mm-hmm. that they'll do, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time they're going, it's like they're having a little party, like, yep. you know, and it reminds me of saying, you know, back in the, the 80s, the, the cartoon, great babe. Great babe, great babe. It just kind of sounds like that's what they're sounding like. I don't know what to call those sounds, but it, it, me as a duck hunter, I'm like, dude, I want to make that sound. Mm-hmm. You know, um, am I processing those two different no, type you, of no, sounds? You're, right? you're not wrong, and, and you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know if you've ever hunted West Tennessee, but West Tennessee, some folks in West Tennessee go, eh, eh, they am, yep. and it's like it doesn't sound to me like a duck call, right? It just kind of sounds like a, a sound that a duck would make. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. yeah, like you know, okay, well that's a general thing, and I swear to God, man, <laughs> I've watched them. I've watched them come right to it. So like, I think 
more often than not, you know, I don't know how many high ball calls they've heard, but um, I know they probably haven't heard those like little single notes all that often from a blind. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, as, as just really just from a perspective of analyzing ducks, yeah. I want to always try to mimic what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm hearing <laughs> then you, these then, sounds... <laughs> is, well, do you want to know the truth? If you want to mimic ducks, you'd be quiet, like, right all the time. Yeah. That's the God's <laughs> honest truth. If you want to mimic ducks, what they really do and what they see... Like, you got to keep in mind, I'm looking at 80,000 80, ducks, and I can still discern individual calls, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you... Right. So just think about that and then go out in the blind and then imagine a duck that's flying two miles over something. And, you know, some of our places we have blinds, like we estimated one area in our place had like one blind every 70 something acres. How many high balls are they getting? How many this, how many that, Mm -hmm. how many, you know, feeder calls are they going to get? I'm not saying they don't make mistakes. I mean, people kill ducks, right? Right. But, um, (laughs) I've, I've, and trust me, I, I'm, I'm a duck call collector. Mm -hmm. I love calling to them. This project has certainly made me quieter. Let me put it that way. That's so, oh, very there's, cool. There's a little bit of uh, less is more with waterfowl. I, I just can't help but think how many times they've heard it. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, and there's no doubt that there's days when we're out there, like you hit it and you are, you are speaking magic to them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. But I, I feel like it's too ingrained in us to like, and I'm just as guilty as anyone. There they are. Call at them. Yeah. Call at them. Well, when, you, when 99% of their time naturally is not spent listening to calling ducks. Mm-hmm. You, you know, this is even just, let's just keep walking away with this. So this is starting to really blow my mind, right? Check it out. So what's the common things that duck hunters do as the season progresses, right? They start out with big spreads. Mm-hmm. They come out calling for the moon, yeah. right? Yep. And we all know that all mallard drakes make a hail call (laughs) that's about as bs i could as i could put it with that um most hunters said what's everybody preaching out there big spreads blah blah why because the ducks haven't paired up yet blah blah blah. dude i can tell you that that's not when that's not the determining factor and then pairing up i've watched them pair up and sometimes they just stay together all the time outside of when the hen's having the babies all right? right but then you say people start saying, "Oh, don't don't use your spinners. Oh, use them, but don't use them." You get later and see the smaller spreads get quieter. All this stuff. So think about this from again, like Brad was saying, a duck's perspective, right? Dude, you're not going to tell me that I can't go out there with a big spread at the end of the season because if I scouted and did my work and I know what's there, I'm throwing a big spread. I don't care what everybody else says so I, sure. I i don't agree with the logic behind that but i'm wondering the question to you is do you think that ducks react off of that normality i guess i should say i think they i think i think i think yeah i think being different can help i do think that just because listen i've hunted arkansas too i've hunted out of pit lines a, a good bit and i've hunted over a thousand decoys and i know that there's just something about numbers that messes with their brain right like i get that um and i don't know how to put it other than like they some you know a duck just can't handle it like there's got to be something going on but i think how do i put this i think and i'm not saying i'm a good duck hunter like 
I'm not even saying I'm. A, I think a you got a slight one. advantage, <laughs> but but I I will say that if you looked at my decoys now and my spread, it, I try to make it different than everyone else out there. I don't even try and mimic what ducks are seeing because I think too many people are mimicking that too. Mm-hmm. Like okay, like okay, there's you know I mean I want I want stuff that looks different. I want them to be like. Cause I don't think ducks are afraid of that. I just don't, mm-hmm. I don't think they're di- afraid of different. I think they're afraid of the same. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, that might, that might not be true. That could Listen, be a, the you're, same you're hearing an opinion. You're hearing an opinion, like from somebody that just sits in a blind, I could have given you that, uh, you know, free of charge without me being a professor. I'm just saying that this, after seeing how much hunters are out there, I just kind of get that sense that like, hmm, maybe I want to be a little different today. Yeah. Hey, it's like my mom says about, tells us every rut, and she's a legendary bow hunter. We'll get down that sometime. Um, but she says, don't you guys blow that grunt call? <laughs> and, and I go, what? She goes, don't do it. Every The big guy knows it. And he's not coming by. If you guys blow that, promise me, you're not going to blow that <laughs> grunt call. <laughs> now, this is a lady that hunted in the 90s, you know. So, But it's very similar what we're mm-hmm. talking about here mm-hmm. it totally makes sense to me um when you look at it on some of these places that are so heavily pressured um because it, you know if a place is not pressured you know and you're fortunate enough to hunt a place like that it makes sense that you maybe would try to mimic more what you saw scouting but it totally makes sense the opposite side of that when you're in a place that just gets every hole gets hammered every sure day, yeah you know right right like you know listen the, the way to kill ducks is you scout them like mm-hmm. and and then if you're on the exit, it doesn't matter what you have. True. You're gonna do all right. Yep. Like what we're trying to do is add the little bit of salt and flavoring to to situations where, ah, eh, you know, let's scrap out some birds here. You know, is it gonna be a good day or is it gonna be an okay day? Mm-hmm. Versus like we, we're on the exit, it's gonna be a great day. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. B- Brad, what is and this is uh, isn't on the on the on the list either. But if you, uh, how many years have you guys been processing this data now? Yeah. So we have. We're going on to our fourth year, so we just finished three complete years okay. of data collection. All right. So with that data, what has been the most interesting or maybe say your top three findings? Do you want coffee that doesn't suck? Get the duck. Dirty Duck Coffee is made specifically for the waterfowl enthusiast. Enjoy flavors like Morning Wood, Dark Dynasty, Cinnamon Teal Snickerdoodle, and first flight to unlock the flavor that you'll enjoy in the blind for years to come. Our friends at Dirty Duck Coffee Company are now offering all Zero Duck 30 followers a 15% discount when you use code Zero Duck 15 on your next order. <laughs> um, from that data. Right. So we thought that being in Tennessee, um, that we would see, we'd put GPS units out in November, let's say. And our ducks would be in Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, trading back and forth, going somewhere. And that's just simply not the case. Um, our ducks get here and they stay here. Wow. And uh, I guess number two is that they keep coming back here year after year. They keep coming back to the same general area, if you will, like maybe the, the boot hill of Missouri, maybe a little, maybe they'll, you know, go to Kentucky or a little bit further south to Memphis or something. That's the same general area. And, and a lot of them actually come back to like literally the spot we caught them. Mm. Um, the third is not just how like they're not they're super 
high fidelity to like once they get to a wintering area we haven't had now keep in mind we haven't had like a really strong winter spell in or like cold spell like november right Mm -hmm. or december during our study that's going to like push them but we did have one in february a year and change ago and uh they didn't they didn't leave then either wow um incredible so uh the third one would be how little these ducks move at all <laughs> like, <laughs> like you figure an animal that go, goes dry, that flies three thousand miles would like i don't know i just always thought they'd fly all over the place and most of our ducks have a, a winter range uh smaller than uh like how much space they use a winter range we'll call it uh no bigger than a deer like probably the size of a turkey or smaller Wow. So here's an animal that can fly and flies all over the place, but sends like 90 something percent of its time and like, you know, 150 to 200 acres. Wow. Goodness. That yeah, is crazy. That is mind blowing to me. But, it, you know, like we were, we've been talking with people in Florida last, like on the podcast and stuff, because we do a good amount of our duck hunting in Florida. And, um, you know, originally after we left Illinois, we went down to Florida and um, it seems that just from observation versus like Arkansas. Right. And it's, it's just this, what I'm trying to get here is like, you were saying how little these ducks move, even when you had that cold pressure or that cold, you know, good front yeah, cold front yeah, in February. And mm-hmm. we thought, you know, last year we hunted Florida on a cold front. It was the coldest, best cold front since like 2008. And it was like 33 degrees in Miami or something. Mm. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. So we were like, man, we're going to hopefully get a good push. Of we're going to smoke their ass is what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just, it's, it, Florida is definitely a state that the same thing, these birds get there. Mm-hmm. And regardless of, it just seems like if you don't hunt them, like the first split or like the first part of December, they just get stale because they're there and they're, they stay there. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they don't yeah. move up and down. No doubt. You don't get. Yeah. And so I wonder, you know, and I, I, and I wonder like what role, weather plays and you know listen we're we're in a kind of unique situation in tennessee and that there is a good bit of food here we haven't had a cold like a truly cold smoking cold winter Mm -hmm. um but i don't know if the new norm is that we're going to get a lot of cold winters i really don't i mean you know i mean at this point i don't know how many cold spells tennessee is going to get where we lock up in december right so like i don't know what the new normal is but i know that like given our situation these ducks just aren't as dynamic as i thought they would be and then, then it plays back into like, well, then I fly up in the air and I see how many hunters are out there. And I'm like, well, no surprise. Okay. I get it. I get you see where I'm getting at? Yeah. And do you, do you pay any mind, Brad, to like, you see the farm, farmer's almanac stuff of, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be, you know, and they're 80% correct or whatever. Do you pay any mind to any of that stuff? Cause some of the like outfitters and stuff we talk to that are also farmers like swear by that stuff oh yeah are you you talking about like activity patterns or something no i'm talking about is terms of like uh the cold winters and migration and weather patterns no so mm, Mm -hmm. i don't know i i think this there's some really cool science that's about to come out in the next year or two that's really gonna like get at what is really going to push birds down and if they're ever going to push down again, like we have some interesting stuff in our data that that like, I just, I just wonder what hunters in and of themselves have done to like, mm, now keep in mind, I keep putting it on hunters, but Mm -hmm. it's multifaceted. It's weather, it's food, it's everything. But like, I start to think like, is there any chance now I'm going to pontificate and this is completely just pontification, Mm -hmm. but like, is there any chance that like, you know, I always, I grew up hunting Long Island. We always had ducks that flew down in November and then we get, you know, pushes as saltwater locked up above us. 
okay, if you look at in Tennessee, it's almost the exact same thing. We get a push of birds and like the Halloween birds, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And then we might get a push in like, if you look at our data, like mm, late December. Okay. Like the final day that the prairies lock up, we get a push. Okay. Uh, that could be as early as like mid-December, can be as late as late December, but somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. What if there's two different types of like migration strategies, right? There's ones that decide, okay, it's November. Uh, I'm going to fly down to my, you know, just like, <laughs> right? Just like any New Yorker that's flying down to Florida in the exactly, winter. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Snowbirds. Just okay. Time, time. <laughs> yeah. The sunbird. All right. We'll call those the sunbirds. We're all yeah, the sunbirds, the others yeah. that are like, and then there are the others that are like push, you know, I'm going to push down. Well, what if those were just so much more susceptible to harvest just because they have to keep changing their environment? Yeah. multiple times compared to the one that just comes and shows up before the season starts. What if we've like this now, this is, there's no, we, we have no clue if this is true, right? But this is, this is like what I get paid to think about. And I love that. I get to pay, get paid to think about, but like, would that be interesting? <laughs> what if we push them that way? So these are the types of things that I think is going to be in the future. The, the questions that we're trying to ask, which are like, how does migration strategies, if it's even genetic at all, uh, food, weather how does it all combine to produce shifts in bird distribution yeah and so that I, was a roundabout way of asking answering your question by and, the way and i guess what i was getting the root of what i was getting at is like you know as hunters we see these things like you see the uh duck a duck um annual duck survey come out and mm-hmm. as hunters it's you know we in our heads we're just waiting for duck season because we're all crazy <laughs> and we start yeah. we get excited about just the smallest little oh. thing you know so it's just like oh it, you well, know, I think like, was your question about like duck numbers? Cause I can answer that. Straight well, up. I don't think, duck, I don't think there's a lot of rephrase your question in a way so, I'll understand. And I'll answer it. Oh, so the original question, no, was not about duck numbers. It's just like, you know, as duck hunters, we see, like I saw something to somebody shared on one of the duck hunting pages I'm on and they're like, put the eyeballs emoji to it. Some uh, farmer's almanac being a cold winter, so that was really just what I was getting at. Is like, no, yeah, no, no, I don't buy any of it. Yeah, I don't buy any of it. Sorry, I, I, I just don't because because I've been we've all been burned too much. Like you know, I yeah. think duck hunters in the end of all things were eternal optimists because we wouldn't keep doing it if we weren't. But at True. the end of all things, like as somebody sitting here just common sense tells me, no, I've had enough. I've had enough years. They, I've had enough years. They said it's a record hatch, and I and I. It's the worst hunting year of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's, you know, it's funny you say that, Brad. Like, our really, we're close with an outfitter in Arkansas, and he's like, every time the numbers come out that they're bad, we have one of the best ducks. In his opinion, they have one of the best duck seasons he ever has at his like, you know, outfitter or whatever. Yeah, he's like, hey, did you see the numbers, Caden? He's like. Yeah, he's like I know. It's I love be, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be a great duck season. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's no doubt. Like, there's no doubt. Less birds mean less ha- harvest potential. But I'm not so sold that it's just so much more multifaceted than that nowadays. That it's that you know, you you know, it's just there's no predictor. A good mm-hmm. season is just like, what did we do right this season? I, I don't know. I <laughs> yeah. don't know. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why this season was the season. We just got lucky <laughs> and, no, and, we'll, and, and don't get me wrong we'll spend five to ten years trying to guess what why was that one so good we should do this we uh, should do that what did we do different but in the end of all things some things just we don't understand yep yep, yep. um no amount of data will tell us so with these gps tracking devices maybe the, i don't know if, if that even measures the right thing um but are you guys able to use the ai that you have 
to measure duck altitude and time at those altitudes to determine mm. what they is there any commonality in distance and altitude? Mm, that's a great question. So we've never done that analysis, and I think it's fascinating. Now, let me tell you, our data could speak to it, but there's some other people that are actually taking like that exact question. Like they they collect data at like when ducks are flying to figure that out. So it's better resolution. The problem we have is, um, so it's a trade-off, right? I can take a lot of like rapid GPS fixes, like when you get a GPS unit and you're walking through the trails, right? But it's going to kill that battery real quick. Mm -hmm. So in the end, what we've kind of traded off is we take a location in hours. So we can't, unless that duck's really flying, like when they're migrating, we've got all that data. But like on a given day, mm, hit or miss, right? Because, right. you know, no, not, most of our ducks probably fly for, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes max in a given day. Sure. So we don't really have that. I got you. I got you. Yeah. It's but just... then again, let me just say this. I will tell you this. Most ducks, when they're not migrating, aren't flying very high. Okay. Right. Because um, they simply don't have to. Right. It's three. They're, they're, they live in a three dimensional space. Unlike like a deer, right? Two dimensional. They're on land. We're on land. Right. Well, a duck only has to fly like, unless, unless you're some like chip shot, uh, 80 yards will, <laughs> 80 yards will make you safe. Right. Right. So they don't need to be high up if they're just no matter how far they're flying, unless they're migrating and hitting a tailwind or something like that. Got it. Got it. So when you guys, so, so let's talk about the data that you do have here mm -hmm. when we're talking about um, any of these graphs and, and maps and drawings that you put up. Mm -hmm. So we're showing um, several ducks going to different areas and there's common, I know that one about a week and a half ago or so was so cool with a lot of numbers that you guys had. And I think you said something like, Oh, isn't it funny that they all uh, do this or something? And I was cracking up and I was like, and, and but it was interesting how the flyway was, you know, some went mm -hmm. down through Indiana, some came through Illinois, mm -hmm. some went to the Great Lakes and came down that way, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just so interesting with when they do their, their main thing, these birds that travel all these longest distances mm -hmm. in a consistent basis, mm -hmm. do they is there a frequency in the stops? Is it all by mm. ear every year or is it patterned by year? Do they stair step as they go? Yeah. So like, um, we've looked at it with spring migration, like them going back North and we looked at it with fall migration and the patterns are, are very similar. Uh, there's, there's some ducks. So this is back to this idea of like different strategies, but there are some ducks that like, hop up maybe to ten from Tennessee to Illinois and then go all the way to the potholes or leave from Tennessee and go all the way to the potholes, like literally, or all the way to Minnesota, like, uh, fly. And like our, our guess is by what they do, it's like 70 miles an hour. They must catch a hell of a tailwind. Mm -hmm. They just go, wow. um, in general though, they take maybe one to two stops and that's it. Like they might stop over and that stop over can last. Um, sometimes it can be as short as like a day, in general, last you know four to six days, and then they'll migrate all the way down. Now, if you get one that's like one of these kind of, you can imagine like one that's being pushed by the cold spell or or, or freezing, those are just literally going to hop down maybe a hundred miles at a time, and they can do it a bunch. I got. Does you. that make sense? Yeah. And they, they'll stay as long as they possibly can. We had a duck that was literally like in the Dakotas. 
until like the first week of January when literally like the last bit of water, the biggest water locked up. He flew and he flew to Missouri and got shot the next day. Yeah. Wow. Wow. See what I'm saying? Wow. Wow. You know, I just, so there's, it's just, I'm trying to process commonality in this migration of these birds and, there, and there's nothing there's com- no, like, like the common nothing. thing no that's the fun that's the coolest part of my yeah like, what you see <laughs> is that like what you start to learn is that like just just as diverse and as we are as people like okay not maybe not on a, such a charismatic level but animals mm. have that too and it's probably some kind of ecological thing right we can't all act the same we can't because mm-hmm. we can't be on top of each other 24-7. Mm-hmm. So you get what, what are effectively personalities or strategies or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And so when, like, and I'm not saying, like, there aren't broad, I'm not trying to make it more complicated than it is, right? Ducks migrate, they migrate south. Right. Some, you know, okay. But, like, within that, there there is uniqueness to it. And it's it's neat on that level. I'm mind blown. Um, <laughs> can I come work for you for the rest of my life? <laughs> Not for if you free? want to pay you, but for free. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. free. I mean, honestly, I'm just like, babe, I'm going to Tennessee. <laughs> all right, all right. So what I'm hearing is once uh, Tony retires here in about 15 years, he might be. Bro, I'm there. <laughs> I am there. Let me be the campus elder or something. <laughs> now, Let, you guys are talking about doing way too much hunting. I'm, I'm going to join you guys. Don't, yeah. don't do it the other way around. I could go do this kind of stuff. If somebody said, look, here's your deal. And I mean this. If somebody came to me, good Lord himself, and said, you got two choices. Well, three, three. You can die. You can work the rest of your life. And I'll give you everything that you ever want. (laughs) Or, and that includes hunting. But if you take this route where you get to study waterfowl the rest of your life, you can't go hunting. <laughs> I'm going to study the waterfowl the rest of my oh, life. Oh, my God. Okay, I mean, well, gonna, you're that's not, the you're kind not, of psycho oh I am. All right? yeah, dude, I am. You're officially psycho because, listen, I, am, I tell these kids I tell these kids all the time that come into this profession, here's the truth. Um, I'm busiest during hunting season, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, so, like, uh, I want to be out hunting every single day, but I'm also, like, helping tag mallards that are all you know all this stuff happens Mm -hmm. and so in the end of all things i often tell people like it's okay to keep a hobby a hobby yeah you know what i'm saying like and don't get me wrong (laughs) you can tell by the way i talk to you i'm passionate about it i love it Mm -hmm. but like there are certain opportunities i'm just naturally going to miss out on that you might not just because i am studying these things the payoff is that i hope that we collect some information that is valuable to hunters and state agencies that makes a difference like that one day i'll go out on peace land and be like that was something i helped uh, inform you know what i'm saying yep. that's the trade-off yeah so cool so that helps me dive into this question that i had is you know i read about how the twra and mm-hmm. uh that's the 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 dnr for tennessee yes. right mm-hmm. and the u.s fish and wildlife service uses the data that you gather can you talk about is is everything that you do, let's say this, because I guarantee if you're a duck hunter and you were listening to the first part of this, you started going, all right, Billy Bob from South Alabama that used to go out and throw corn on a refuge and just smoke their butt. <laughs> Guess what? There's ears on you, bro. <laughs> all right? There's ears on you. And if you don't think that's not being shared, um, you got nothing coming, all right? So Billy Bob is sitting there going, all right, what's this guy? What's this guy <laughs> got going on? So, let's talk about what how they use the data 
maybe, I mean, I'm sure there's several different ways, but just can you talk about a couple of the most important things that are vital that you guys are like, man, we got to give them this data. Yeah, it's, it's, it actually sometimes is the simplest stuff like survival data, movement data. Where do they go? Where could we, you know, where do they hang out? Um, some simple stuff like that. Like, is there areas that we could purchase along migration routes and or in their wintering area? That would be more priority. State agencies might be like, can we do different habitat management to either keep to move ducks around or to have, you know, should we have many small refuges or none at all? one big one like those are the type of that's how they use our data straight up and usually it's just simple like here's where they move to here's the survival rates here's what you know here's the difference maker wow so you guys do you guys have like a whistleblower like if they shoot them <laughs> up too much in a, in a wma you're like you know what somebody got there with an airplane on, on november 20th and run it through there between missouri and arkansas you know <laughs> well you know listen I, I you know we're still exploring some of that stuff but i will tell you um and this is just at the beginning of analysis so this is nothing official but I am absolutely stunned with, you know, you would figure that if you moved all these ducks around, you, you know, you go into a refuge, kick 50,000 ducks up, that you would see this huge pulse in shooting across our study area, right? Like, I mean, just by the sheer fact that I hear it, I hear shots when I kick up ducks. Right. But if you look, um, our preliminary analysis says like, no, like what happens is, yeah, you got those ducks up. Um, and some people shot, some people close to refuge did some shooting, but then you know what those ducks do? Uh, they literally run right back to that same refuge and sit down and stay there the whole night. Cause you, you, you've now gone into their house, into their bedroom, scared the crap out of them. And they're like, I'm not moving. So we actually, some of our initial findings are like, it actually somehow makes hunting worse. When we <laughs> <Wow>. scare, right. <laughs> do you see where I'm getting at? Yeah. It's like that's... they move less when we disturb them. They actually, the ducks move less on those days. Yes. Shock and blast are less, like across a whole day. Like, yes, there's that pulse that happens mm. within five minutes of us getting those ducks off. Pop, 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 pop. And then over time, though, throughout that day, there are less shots. Like, I mean, it changes the whole damn tree. It's kind of like if you put it as simple as like you in your house, like uh, if there was an intruder in your house, you'd probably Bingo. be less likely to go to the grocery store. <laughs> yes exactly exactly and that's that's how you need to think about it like when someone comes into your safe place your first reaction isn't to go eat that day yeah it's literally like like get into your secure room lock the door yeah. and like chill out yeah. <laughs> that is great oh man and so like it's it's it, it is not what i would have thought i would have thought something different i would have thought we would get a big pulse of hunting like that they ducks would spread out all across the landscape no you're literally like they just sit tight they're like what just happened wow wow so what um you know, we're talking about that data that you gather for mm -hmm. these different agencies. Mm -hmm. And really, you said in the beginning about it's, it's part of your sole purpose. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. um, have you guys processed anything lately? You know, I mean, I guess really the last three years, like you said, this information, has it changed anything in a significant way from the state level, from the national level um, where it's raised eyebrows in a positive or negative way. 
Yeah, so I think we're starting to learn from, from the state level. Tennessee has an inordinate amount, like a large amount of state-held refuge areas for waterfowl across the state. And the reason they funded this project was like, here's a lot of land that we are holding up. Mm-hmm. Like, what is best for our constituents? Mm-hmm. And as far as our data is concerned, I mean, it is abundantly clear that like they need those safe areas and probably need more. And so like on that end, we're going to do a, a enter into a, a experiment looking at how if we can incentivize safe areas across the landscape and see if we move ducks around better. Like I was saying on a federal level now, federal is way different. I want you to imagine that like every bit of science that goes into waterfowl management is a drop in the bucket. And uh, at the Fed level, you need that that bucket to be tipping over before decisions are made because they want to do what's best. Like, you know, my study is one study in Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. Now you got to add like studies being done in Arkansas, someone in Louisiana, someone out here, someone in Missouri. And all of a sudden those pieces start to become a bigger and bigger bit and then we can inform federal management right does that make sense yeah yeah so it's, it's parts of the pie you it's know? just parts of the pie right yep. so like your federal like you always want to help federal management but no federal management will ever get done on the findings of one study that's just it's not it's not even scientifically defendable you sure. see what i'm saying sure like i can tell you guys here's what we're finding here's what i think is interesting but the feds are going to sit there and go like show me that happened everywhere else or at least in a bunch of other places let's pick up on that bigger pattern and now let's make a decision they do it right i got you got you cool um all right so we're gonna switch gears to a a big worded question for for a simple guy like me okay brad what is y'all listen up now what is anthropogenic disturbance did i say it correctly uh, yeah anthropogenic it's a fancy scientific term for did i say it right you, you, yeah anthropogenic Dude, i'm so cool <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's right. just a fancy word for like um human influence disturbance so that right. goes back to us moving these birds off disturb off the refuge but also we look at like it's not just on the refuges that we look but like we look at what happens when hunters come into the landscape opening day we look at what happens in these areas that um are public hunted areas that are arrested for three days or two days at a time and then hunters come in and hunt them again so like we're always interested in the role that people are having Mm. on actually everything we study to be honest with you i mean that's kind of central to it but definitely with waterfowl like that's certainly become more and more the pressing question because as we've done and i'm sure you'll get to it but we've done a lot of food measurement out there and at least in west tennessee um on again not cold super cold winters there's a lot of food out there. So yeah. like, that's, that's it. You know, like people, people. Okay. All right. So w- drill down a little bit and, and, and speak in redneck terms. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> what you guys are doing to, why is that important? Why is, anth- why is your study on anthropology? Just call Anthro- it human disturbance. Just call it human, human disturbance. disturbance. On human you disturbance. So you, did, you did so good the first time. Let me go on a high learn, note, you man. Learn to take a, you got to take a win. Showmanship, um, right? All right, yeah. All right. Um, you know where I'm so, going. So, yeah, in the end of all things, I mean, <laughs> what you start when you study animals long enough and you watch natural behavior, you just watch it, and then you look at their behavior the second people become involved, and you're like, <laughs> 
okay, holy crap, I cannot believe how much we influence animals. That's whether we're building a subdivision, whether we're putting up a fence for deer, or whether we're shooting at animals. It all interplays in that, like, yeah, we, their common sense tells us we're going to, like, change the landscape when we put houses up or build a road or do whatever we're going to do. But you don't really understand it until you look at the data. It's just, like, the magnitude of how we affect these animals is unbelievable. And oftentimes, given previous technology, it was hard to scale that type of question into our management design, right? Mm -hmm. How do we optimize? If we're going to, how are we going to optimize hunter opportunity? How are we going to optimize hunter harvest? If that's the goal, how can we manipulate the landscape by manipulating hunters Mm -hmm. and therefore change how animals interact? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just, that's it. I, I, it's just, it's just like Cato. He says, simple as that. I'm just well, like, I mean, I mean, just I'm sitting there. My turkeys. brain is going in 70 different no. directions. Our partners at HuntWise are offering an exclusive discount for Zero Duck 30 followers. As an elite member, some of the features you'll immediately gain access to are HuntCast, WindCast, peak kill times, property lines, owner information, and phone lookup. 250 map layers, unlimited offline maps, 3D maps, social media, and on top of it all, save up to 50% off some of the top hunting brands in the industry. Download and explore the number one hunting tool set today and save 20% by using code DUCK30. You know it's not rocket science, right? No. Think of it for turkeys, right? Yep. Okay. Where do turkeys get hunted most? Along trails. Yep. Okay. Right. Our data, our data seems to suggest that uh, that hunter harvest is higher off of trails. Well, why does that make wow. sense? Right. So birds. Wow. Okay. Well, well, we're not there, but that makes sense, right? Yeah. You have a bird that literally hears every day of its life during hunting season. If it lives near a trail, it hears the same the same <laughs> group of people, that same hen, right? Like on that trail, he learns to like shut up and not talk, right? Mm-hmm. But those naive ones. Okay, well now maybe if I want to, you know, change hunter harvest, maybe I, maybe I limit areas, maybe I don't, maybe I shut shut off certain trails, mm-hmm. maybe I open certain trails. You see where? Mm-hmm. Like even something as simple as that, yeah, we can manage population in some way, shape, or form. Maybe by that, I mean mm-hmm. that's, you see where I'm going, right? Yeah, for sure. That is so cool, so cool. Um, you yeah. know, it, it, it as you sit there and talk about this, it's, I, I can't say it the other way that you know i i love animals all right and but i'm a hunter so i'm different than gear than somebody that doesn't hunt um i i eat the food that i take um it's just who i am it's how i grew up and it's just uh, who i am um this data Mm -hmm. how humans affect animal and and like you said, you know, it's no different than um, somebody throwing up a fence and a pronghorn migration, you Bingo. know, whatever. Um, it, it, it it rips me a little bit in the gut, you know, because I, I we can't avoid it as civilization happens, and, and we've seen it down in Florida in such a huge, huge way, uh, habitat going away and you know and mm-hmm. we've been talking with a lot of people that you know are helping out with habitat and stuff um i'm just so excited at what you guys are going to be able to do with this data to help preserve habitat yeah 
I mean, that's the end goal, right? I mean, in the end goal, all we want to do is create the best quality habitat we can, given the conditions that are set without our without our say, right? Yep. Whether people are building or moving or whatever it is, we just want to give them the best we can. And that's that's the end goal. And people are just part of the equation. Well, you know, like I watch like, uh, let's just say Mountain Men for Singapore. And I'll tell you guys where I'm going with this. You watch that show and the guys out there find a bush plane for three hours into the forest that is undisturbed by man. Mm-hmm. Animals do what they do on a daily basis, whether you're there or not. And they have this process and these habits and all these things. And what's interesting to me is the difference of how remarkable so many of these animals are to be able to adapt to these habitats and, and change, you know, um, is it, so cool. So, um, Brad, one thing I wanted to ask kind of on that topic before we get off that. So, you know, Tony and I are big deer hunters and from mm-hmm. Illinois and stuff. And that's kind of where our love for the outdoors both started. Obviously my dad, you know, get me into it and stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, people talk about how smart, like we were talking about earlier, how smart big bucks are, mm-hmm. you know, over mm-hmm. four and a half, five and a half, six and a half years old deer. Yeah. Um, you know, and people talk about your best chance of killing a big bug. Obviously, you're taking it into consideration wind and all these different factors into your hunt if you're really serious about killing a nice deer. Mm-hmm. But, sure. um, you know, I'd imagine since you guys are like tagging mallards and stuff, I'd imagine you're probably putting collars on deer maybe too. Um, what have you guys found as far as, let's say I'm a hunter going to hunt Illinois and like, uh, I've hunted an area two or three days in a row, um, and I'm not seeing success. I because that people say basically, essentially, what I'm getting at is that after the first couple hunts, if you haven't had success there, it's probably time to move because you probably put enough disturbance in that area that mm-hmm. the deer that the big deer, smart deer, are not going to come through there. What kind of data do you guys have on that with mature white field deer? Yeah, so some of that stuff I helped work on when I was at UGA mm-hmm. and, uh, in, in the end of all things, I think that's a pretty, pretty good rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think, you know, a lot of, and it's just not my, or like research that was not at the university of Georgia, but research on Mississippi state who has a great deer lab too. I mean, we see deer bucks, especially mature bucks learn the game really quick. Like even, even when you do your best, Mm-hmm. You know, it's only the reason so many bucks are killed during the rut is because uh, simply because they're following does and maybe the does aren't as sensitive. Right. Right. Like, uh, although I, I do think those are just as sensitive, but like they're just they don't have you on their mind. Mm-hmm. But the second you're there, um, they know it. They just know it and they respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. They avoid they avoid the areas you've been. at. So I think two to three days is pretty generous. I got gotcha. you. Yep. So it goes along with what. My mom's been preaching since 80, 80 something, 80, 80 somethings. So yeah, they are, they are incredibly, you know, and I always give credit to this and, and people look at me sometimes and think I'm crazy when I give this analogy, this is our genius. And I don't know the name of the guy that wrote Bambi, (laughs) but who was the great prince? He was the biggest buck in the forest. And when he knew something was wrong, all animals said, "Go home." <laughs> they, they got out it, because he was yeah. he was considered the smartest animal in the forest, you know. And it's interesting to me that that man or woman who wrote the book analyzed animals so much to 
to put that. Yeah. It wasn't all just because he made no, it with a big I mean, rack. If you look at the science, it's it's just like anything else. Like I don't think animals move as much as we thought they did, especially in the confines of when people are out there. Like mm-hmm. they just sit, they just sit still a lot. So the second he he uh, senses you, okay, yeah, he has one option. He can go somewhere else, but you know, he can also just like hang out and wait for you to leave. And um, you know, it's probably a combo of both, but they, they're super sensitive to it. And I, I, I think it's made me as far as a deer hunter, cause I'm a huge deer hunter too. Uh, if I'm going to hunt a specific buck, um, I'm looking at hunting him for like maybe two days here, two days next month. And I'm patterning him as hard as I can, mm-hmm. but I'm only, I'm only putting in a handful of days for him because otherwise I'm wasting my time. Yeah. Now, Brad, you know, people talk about, it's kind of like the, um, I don't know if you want to call it like a wives tale or whatever you want to call it, but you know, people have these theories on, you know, if, uh, if a certain animal is talking in the woods or like people say like with waterfowl, for example, like, um, if there's other birds flying, like the waterfowl are probably still flying. And then once the water, the other birds die off, you know, throughout the morning or whatever, then the waterfowl quit flying. But like in the woods, people, for example, like, uh, you know, sometimes just from our, me and my dad's like, observing like you might hear squirrels or blue jays going you know crazy in the woods and then not too long after that you might see a deer so what yeah. do you guys with the ac acus is that what you called them oh the aru's yeah aru's <laughs> so have you guys had like can you quantify any of that data with like waterfowl yeah. or any of the other species i'm so happy as, you're my son right as, now to ask this question <laughs> as far as <laughs> as far as like um whether it's waterfowl deer or turkey is there any correlation with like the general environment and all the species to like the species you're targeting? Like, yeah. cool question. Yeah, I don't. That's a great question, and I'm going to hit it on a roundabout answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've done this research now with turkey or deer, mm-hmm. uh, ducks, and if you look in the literature, it's been done with a lot of other animals. Mm-hmm. All right, if you look at everything animals are sensitive to, what they are undoubtedly most sensitive to is changes in barometric pressure. Most is a, most is a harsh word, but what they are sensitive to, right? Now, so what our data suggests, for example, with like mallards is like they don't fly more on days when it's really cold. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why. But right a day before a storm comes in, those suckers are up and about. And that holds true for squirrels, blue jays, blah, blah, blah. So like when you're seeing animals be more active um, in a given day, yeah, they're all responding to the same thing. Now, within an hour, ah, probably just their own timing. You know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of animals are active, like, at 8 and 7, 8 in the morning. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. Um, And, you know, one thing that was actually part of my thought when I was making that question is, like, for example, um, with the teal we were discounting, and I mm. we, we don't see this as often, like, hunting the timber, but, like, for mm-hmm. example, they say in our area, like, foul weather is good for waterfowl. And, mm-hmm. you know, the barometric pressure changed. So we're scouting teal, um, I guess it was Sunday morning. Yep. And we mm-hmm. sat there, we got out there kind of late to the spot that we got to or whatever, and it's 8.30, and we saw one teal between probably 8.30 and 9. And then mm-hmm. we, between 9 and 9.10, I bet we saw 20 or 30 teal. But mm-hmm. we were like, we got five more minutes. We're watching the storm roll in, looking at our weather apps. We're like, we mm-hmm. got five or ten more minutes before we got a jet or we're not making it back mm-hmm. to the boat ramp before mm-hmm. the storm hits. Mm-hmm. 
and it, it just seems you know people say oh you smoke birds you know in the in the rain and stuff it just it yeah. seems like you're so the barometric pressure seems oh. so important for yes that. yeah yeah so so like okay listen how many times have we sat out there in the blind in the coldest, crappiest, shittiest weather mm-hmm. to kill some ducks? Yep. And listen, I'm not saying they aren't more killable in like during a storm. All mm-hmm. right. I'm not saying that because they could choose different habitat types. You know, they could go into like wooded area. Well, they'll probably go into like I don't know, secluded areas that we might hunt more. Maybe they are. Mm-hmm. But they certainly don't move more during a storm, mm-hmm. during a snowstorm. They don't necessarily seem to necessarily move as much um, cold days. They don't move as much. What they do is right before a storm, okay. the day like that barometric pressure is truly dropping out. It gets a little windy. You know what I'm talking about? Just yeah, like yeah. you're talking about when that storm, that storm, whether it's, you know, a day away or an hour away, they're getting up and moving. Now, where are they going? Well, maybe to a spot to rest out the storm or maybe they're going to eat. Who knows? That's what some of our research will look at. Mm-hmm. So interesting. All right, so um, by the way, by the way, I've got I've got fifteen more minutes. All right, perfect. Sounds good. All right, so let's jump into this real quick. Talk about your objective to estimate biomass, energetic use days, yeah. and depletion <laughs> of flooded, unharvested corn from wintering uh, waterfowl in Western right. Tennessee. Because listen, when I read this on your website, I could tell mm. that there is a lot of energy being put into this area, and I yeah. want people to understand what this means. All right, so uh, you're going to rile up every person from Louisiana when I talk about this. Beautiful. All right, right, so uh, the main objective there is actually that is a federal level objective where, you know, ducks in the wintering area, right, like the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, they're actually managed, the habitat management is actually just an energy allotment, right? So like the feds say, okay, we're probably going to have this many ducks and here's how much energy we need in Tennessee. Here's your share of the energy that you need to put on the ground and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, And this is, there's, I'm going to try and make it as kind of simple as possible because it's a little more black and gray, but all right. Uh, All right. So we want to know how much corn is out there, period. That's our goal. Mm-hmm. All right, we want to know from the tippy top uh, how much flooded corn is out there from the Dakotas all the way down. All mm-hmm. right, and that's multi level because we want to look at the, how it affects duck migration, all that stuff. But in the end of all things, believe it or not, the feds don't really have a really great estimate of like how much is available um, initially on, let's say, private lands, like which we would assume were better quality because they can, you know, it's better quality mm-hmm. land usually. Right. And also, how quick is it depleted? All right, you ready? Yeah, corn obviously provides a ton, a ton of food. And yes, West Tennessee has a ton of it, both on public and private land. In fact, like probably most of it's on private land. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of it is eaten, but there are certainly is a lot of flooded corn left over by March. All of that is in the end of all goals what we want to do is like try and understand how much how much energy is the private land contributing to waterfowl Mm. like because then maybe we can start thinking about like maybe diversifying some of our management elsewhere Uh, maybe putting less food in certain places to make those move around more you see where i'm going yeah large Mm -hmm. landscape scale yeah but yeah like corn is corn is king and uh (laughs) it's not going anywhere anytime soon (laughs) <laughs> understood understood 
That is so cool because, you know, each of these things are like things that you don't really think about every day as a duck hunter. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of you guys' goals for the future? Like, what do you got your eye on? Like, if yeah. I can figure out a technology to support what I this data I want to get, what is that? Yeah, so like where we're going with it is far is your question like where are we going with the next phase of research or yeah 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 i mean let's yeah let's keep it listen our our next goal our next our next project is this it's being so i had i mentioned my phd student abby blake bradshaw i have another phd student named nick masto and i had a master's student named Corey highway it's three students that did the first phase of this project okay now Corey highway is coming along to do his phd on the second phase of this project and it is literally a replicate of the previous three years, except that we're going to try and add these private land rest areas. What we're doing is we're going out and working with landowners and we're hoping that they'll set aside a portion of their land that they were previously hunting to be a rest area. And I'm talking about the thickest, gnarliest, unhuntable stuff they've ever had, right? Gotcha. Like we, we want it to be secluded and we're just gonna put GPS trackers on those ducks and we're gonna do the exact same thing. A perfect, beautiful before and after design. Does it affect harvest opportunity, duck survival, duck movement? Because if that's the recipe, that's that is implementable. Like you can do something like, like what QDM does, where they have QDM cooperatives. Cooperatives. Well, listen, I might only own 100 acres. You own 100 acres. Everyone here owns 100 acres, but maybe we take the central 25 acres of the corners of our property and make that a rest area. We all hunt from the Beautiful. edges. Beautiful. Yep. You see where I'm going? Yes. Mm-hmm. I love like, that. Maybe that is something that can tangibly be done. And that's what, that's what I'm most excited about right now. It's like seeing, I don't know what the effect size will be. It's a hypothesis. And that jazzes me up. Like it's a high risk, high reward type situation. Yeah. That's awesome. That is so cool. Um, man, we're so thankful that you could be on here with us tonight. And I'm going to, you said 15, so I'm going to keep you less than 15. Um, we gotta give you time to go maybe have beer or whatever but, um, <laughs> or maybe or maybe have dinner with my wife you know yeah, <laughs> one, yeah. one of those two things <laughs> i mean give her love for us my, my, my daughter's been staring at me from the window for the last 45 minutes that's okay, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness all right so check this out what can we do as hunters or if you're not a hunter you just love wildlife and doesn't have to be ducks. You guys do all these different animals. And you yeah. said everything from rails or whatever. What can we do as public folks year round? What are, yeah. I mean, can you give us a handful of things that you yeah. guys would say, hey, we need you? Mm-hmm. Okay. You ready? It's, it's going to, I don't want it to sound pompous, but nope. here's the deal hunters have to understand that the agencies that manage their wildlife are hunters too, and we all want what's best for the resource like there's no secret agenda there's none of that bs like mm-hmm. in the end of all things we only we can't act on gut and superstition or like thought like hey it looks different we let science drive the question to make sure we provide the best opportunities for everyone and all too often i it kills me to know what good people are in this field mm-hmm. and this you know the crap they get yes. constantly as like they're somehow the enemy like none of us got into it for that all of us got into it because we love this stuff right? right we're all on the same team so yeah you know join ducks unlimited join delta join nwtf they do great things um but in the end of all things trust <laughs> trust the agencies that are managing wildlife because we're all just trying to do the best we can with the resources that we have 
man understood thank you for sharing that brad that that's a great way to reply to that question i mean mm -hmm. we all do forget that the the reason why the everybody if i wanted to do it i don't i mean i think i think we <laughs> all see the backlash that um yeah. you guys get and yeah it just across the board throughout any state, you know, and I just, I, that's great that you brought that up. You can up. always preach from the sidelines, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, Every, right, everybody's right, right. a Monday well, morning my, coach. When Tristan was yeah. playing football, I knew every right answer Monday morning for, that morning head, for that head coach. And I wanted to tell him, but I couldn't because I was a coach, so I didn't do that. <laughs> it's, it's the same, yeah, Monday morning quarterback. Monday morning quarterback, yeah. exactly. Um, so do you guys ever have any, like, needed bodies, you know, people like when you go out banding or anything like there's anything yeah, that we're, if we're, somebody we're, wanted we're, to contribute or money or time how could we yeah, do that i mean we we generally are, are have been really fortunate on the on the money side right now uh the state agencies and federal agencies that support our work are excellent partners and so you know uh what we're really looking for is if somebody wants that experience uh, we're, we're generally depending on our timing happy to somehow get them involved if if, if uh if timing allows, um, they can follow us up on uh, our Facebook page, Cone Wildlife Lab, and leave a message. And if it's something we can coordinate, we will. We 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 often um, can, but sometimes you know we can't, depending on where you guys are. And uh, yeah, we just want to get people that experience. That's fine. That's awesome. And so, where can everybody follow you guys at um, on it's, social it's media? Literally, and stuff? I think it's so it's at Cohen Wildlife Lab, and that is C O H E N wildlife lab both on facebook and instagram man and we post as much information as we can there if you're if you're interested uh, great we, we hope you enjoy it i'm so happy but i'm so sad i, I mean <laughs> this was uh, i mean i don't mean to throw favorites but this was for me personally as a person my favorite podcast we've done um, Brad, <laughs> thank you i'm blown away i wish i could just suck your brain uh, i mean <laughs> well, uh, maybe, maybe next time maybe you invite me into a duck blind somewhere and you know you can you can get a full couple hours of all my opinions so yeah there you go. yeah we're gonna we're gonna strap you into the line you're not leaving <laughs> 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 yeah we're gonna make you get up and do this special call that you know that you won't tell anybody <laughs> oh, about yeah. right, 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 right. here watch, watch me whistle to him and drop him out of the <laughs> yeah, right he just shows up with a deer grunt call and uh, they start falling oh, in the spread yeah. you know it's like this guy <laughs> You know, yeah. All no, right. just just a chainsaw or something like that calls them in every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. We're humbled by your time that you spent with us today, and please pass on our apologies to your family. And uh, <laughs> I hope that we can have you on uh, later on. I'd like to talk to you about mid-season, uh, maybe during the first break if you're available, and let's just talk about like real data, like as it's yeah. happening. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I appreciate you it guys. It could be a lot shorter version, but just, you know, just kind of dive into that. <laughs> hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Brad. It was awesome stuff. All right. Talk to you guys later. Have a great night. I've been southbound. I've been hellbound. Riding on the midnight train. 